Hello and welcome everyone. I am Kale Fleggy and this is the Made in Gainesville podcast. On this show, you'll hear stories and get insights from business owners and leaders from across the nation that have ties to Gainesville. In this episode, we'll hear from Kenneth Kingswell, owner of Streganona's Oven, a delicious mobile wood-fired artisan pizza and catering company. We'll discuss Kenny's enormous passion for pizza, explore regional pizza styles, talk about his experience serving on a nuclear ballistic missile submarine, and examine current threats facing America. Enjoy! Why do you have such an interest in pizza? Because pizza changes every time. You know, pizza is, to every person, I think they they remember that one time they had, like, just the greatest pizza or even the crappiest pizza. And even the crappiest pizza is still pretty good pizza. Um, so I like it because on any given day it could be the best or it could be the worst and it's still it's pretty awesome is all pizza awesome <laughs> what about what about chicago style well you now now we're talking about styles i i'm not really a big fan of chicago pizza i'm sure it has its place but you know when you start talking about pizza history and how chicago style came about um it's a different um type of Italian that emigrated to Chicago, different climate, you know, super cold. So the need to develop from a thin crust to a thicker, hardier crust, it, it suits Chicago fine. I don't, do I think Chicago style has a place in Florida? No, because it's hot. Uh, I don't think Chicago style pizza would work well in Florida or California or... Can we even call it pizza, or is it a lasagna? I would say it's a, a pizzazzarole, like a pizza casserole. <laughs> it's, it's its own entity. I don't know that, you know, I, there's a huge debate. It's always going to rage forever what pizza is the best pizza. I think to each his own. You like Chicago style, great. You like Detroit style, great. Kansas City you know, new neo-Neapolitan, which is a new Neapolitan style that they're doing in New York and elsewhere around the country. Um, I think it uh, all depends on what you like. You want to have weird toppings? Great. Come see me because I'll turn anything into a pizza. And so people may view my pizza not as more traditional style of pizza. I haven't even heard of some of the styles you just mentioned. What is, what did you say, Kansas City style? What is that? Yeah, so in Kansas City, uh, in Missouri, they have a uh, specific style. Actually, Pizza Hut uh, came, was founded out of uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Um, and they have kind of a hybrid Sicilian style crust. But the, the Kansas City style pizza, they have this cheese it's local to the area it's called provel it's kind of a cross between provolone and then kind of like Velveeta. and so the melting point of the cheese is a little bit different more creamier texture but only if you've been to kansas city will you know what kansas city style is same with detroit uh, detroit style is kind of like um little caesar's pizza you know pizza pizza 
that's Detroit style. Uh, not quite Chicago deep dish, but almost like the pan style pizza that's baked in square pans. So if you had to eat just one type of pizza, one style for the rest of your life? It'd probably be New York style. New York style. Yeah. And what makes New York style New York style? Well, they because they use a, um, a higher gluten flour. That's how they're able to make larger pizzas, you know, 20 to 30 inch pies to cut them into slices. Um, and really it, it started uh, in New York from Italian immigrants coming over. And then they branched out. They left New York. They, they ended up in um, Connecticut, New Haven. New Haven's known for um, their coal oven style pizza. Um, and all the way up to Rhode Island, they have a grilled pizza. Boston is kind of a hybrid New York style pie. They have their own style. Chicago, we talked about, um, even out in San Francisco. Uh, which has a large Italian immigrant population. They have their own style, but they're all loosely based off of the New York style pizza. So you're a bit of a pizza historian. What is the most interesting pizza history that you've come across? Pizza history. Actually, I was just reading the other day. Um, so this group of guys, you know, like guys do, sitting around having a few beers, couple of them were uh, Italian physicists and uh, one guy was a uh, food anthropologist and so they decided to get down to the heart of the matter what makes a good pizza a good pizza so the physicist developed an equation based on uh, thermodynamics of an oven and what it should be at and the food anthropologist decided um, well we should Look at the margarita pizza because that's the most well-known of all pizzas but i found it ironic that they were doing this in rome italy and not naples italy the home of the margarita so their data might be a little off because they had a roman pizza maker making a margarita pie not that he doesn't know how but ingredients vary from region to region in italy you mentioned the pizza oven. Let's talk about the pizza oven. Okay. Tell me about your pizza oven and how essential it is to making the right pizza. So my pizza oven is based on the Pompeii style uh, pizza oven. Uh, if you have ever been to Pompeii, have you ever been to Pompeii? Nope. Uh, so most people know big volcano event, eruption, buried the city of Pompeii in ash, and one day they started excavating and they found uh, remains of bread baking ovens and so that's what the Neapolitans people from Naples that's what their ovens are based on that design so my design is an American design I chose not to buy an Italian oven uh, because I'm in America and so I like to buy American and I uh, did some research and found a company in California and they were using high refractory materials, um, and their design was one that I liked, so I purchased one from them. So how important is that oven to making the right pizza? Can you make, I mean, obviously make a pizza in a home oven, but what, it, what makes that so much better to do it in the right oven versus a home oven? So you can, you can make 
an excellent pizza in your home oven, electric or gas. Uh, the only difference that is lacking in a home oven versus my oven, I have three means of heat. I have convection, I have radiation, and then I have the top uh, heat as well. So in your home oven, you have, if it's electric, you have a bottom burner, then you have broil. So you're getting the top heat and the bottom heat, but you're not getting air any air circulation unless um, you have a convection oven, and that is where you get the air circulating and moving out. So in a Pompeii oven, you've got the radiation um, heat coming from the top. You're getting the convection from the air draw coming in and out of the oven to fire the, uh, the wood and uh, then the bottom heat from the co actual cooking stone. What about the Hawaiian pizza? I found that pineapple on the pizza is often more dividing than politics. Well, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people who say, oh, no pineapple on pizza, especially New Yorkers. They are hardcore against pineapple on, on uh, pizzas. I see a lot of social media out of New York in regards to different pizzerias and things. Um, hey, you can put whatever you want on a pizza. But if I don't have it, I can't put it on there for you. So, But no more than five toppings. But no more than five toppings. So really, if you count your cheese and your sauce, three more toppings, and that's it. That's maximum. Otherwise, you might as well have Chicago deep dish pizza. Where can we get some of your pizza? Well, uh, I alternate on Friday nights between Tipple's Beer and Wine and Blackadder Brewing. And on Saturdays, um, typically at the Hale Farmer's Market from 8.30 to noon, unless I have private catering or private event going on that I'm uh, putting on that day. Okay, let's pivot a little bit. I understand that you served on a submarine? Yes, I uh, served on board a ballistic missile submarine. Much like the movie and novel, Hunt for Red October. Do you have any Hunt for Red October style stories? Um, well, for the most part, you know, we were on a ballistic missile submarine, so they would, uh, I was based in Groton, Connecticut, and then we would fly to Scotland. Uh, there were two crews, and we would fly to Scotland. We would see what was wrong with the uh, submarine that needed to be fixed um, from the other crew. Uh, we'd get a turnover from them. They'd pack up all their stuff, leave the sub. Then we'd move on the sub, fix everything that was broken, and uh, go out for like a little shakedown cruise, make sure, you know, the, the sub wasn't sinking to the bottom and everything was functioning correctly. And then come back, load nuclear weapons and uh, missiles, uh, load up with food, and then head out to the ocean to a grid unspecified grid coordinate where we just did circles in the ocean waiting for the president to uh, spin up all missiles. So your only function was to just drive around a circle in case you had to launch a missile? Pretty much, yeah. A nuclear missile? We're, yeah, we we're on station. Um, we had a targeting package. Um, I didn't, you know, the lower level guys, I was an engineering uh, nuclear uh, mechanic. Uh, we, we weren't privy to that info, I'm sure probably only the top three guys on the sub knew, you know, where the, the they might not even known. I think they try to keep the, the 
the whole thought process of, oh, where are these missiles? You know, it's it, you got to be a robot in that situation because they, they send a signal to the sub, then there's a safe, and it gets unlocked by two people, and then there are codes to authenticate the code is actually real, um, and then if it's real, then, you know, sidearms are broken out, so nobody's trying to, you know, keep them from launching the missiles, and so I'm sure they probably don't tell us where actual missiles are, are targeted towards a specific spot, but I know we were in the North Atlantic somewhere, so pretty close to Russia. Um, as far as uh, interesting stories, um, the Marines, every time we loaded uh, nuclear weapons, uh, there was a Marine detail with automatic weapons on board the ship or surrounding the sub when they were loading the nuclear missiles on board the sub. Um, you never knew how many they were going to load. I mean, we carried 20 missiles, but you might have had 10 out of 20 loaded or 12. You just never knew which ones were live, which ones were dummy. Um, but there was a high-ranking admiral kind of trying to egress through an area when they were loading the missiles and the Marines basically put them on the ground and said, you know, put your head on the ground, uh, do not move, we have orders, shoot to kill orders. So this was an admiral. This was an admiral, yeah, pretty high up guy. So that was one interesting story. Uh, another one was we were in what's referred to a sea lock. So it's kind of like a little bay in Scotland where you know you get the influence of the uh, the tides and it was kind of like a cove area and there was a big submarine tender there so if you think about a, like a big tanker and then on either side of that ship were four or five subs on either side they would have uh, maintenance people helping work on the subs they would load um, food and and other necessary items. Uh, we were nuclear powered so we didn't have to worry too much about fuel. Um, but we had Greenpeace come in and, and some um, inflatables and try to um, try to board uh, some of the subs and so everybody broke out the high pressure water hoses, fire hoses and we were So they tried to board a nuclear sub? Yes. That so, held nuclear missiles? Yeah. I'm sure that was kind of a major security <laughs> risk? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. But, you know, we knew that to expect it, and so we just got up there with high-pressure fire fire hoses and drove them off, and so, and then the third time, the well, only third exciting time was, we were uh, we actually our last cruise we were going to um, transit from Scotland um, through the Panama Canal and then decommission the sub in Bremerton, Washington. Um, and what I mean by decommission sub is the sub had, had seen the maximum of its life. Uh, that sub I was on um, was commissioned in 1969, and we decommissioned the boat in 1991. So almost 30 years of life on that one uh, sub. So it had seen one reactor change. So, you know, reactors last a pretty long time, but the, you know, the decay and the radiation and the half-life of those take a long time. So uh, we did kind of like a little pleasure cruise. We went into the med, stopped at a couple of places, and then we were leaving 
uh, we were going through the Straits of Gibraltar and a Russian attack sub was on us and we had to have a couple of U.S. attack subs kind of fake him out and so we could get away because it's just a big cat and mouse game of you know trying to identify who has subs where are they what are they doing how often does that happen uh with um missile subs not very often because your whole idea is to go out be undetected just um basically go around in a circle on station and not be detected so you can launch your missiles. If an attack sub knows you're there, their job is to destroy you before you launch your missiles. So uh, as far as the fast attacks submarines, the hunter-killer submarines, uh, they saw a lot more ports than a missile sub. Uh, we would go underwater. We would be out for three to four months. The longest I was underwater was about 115 days, and that was uh, because one of the other subs we had to cover there targeting package because they had something break that was you know an issue so they had to leave their targeting package and we picked it up until somebody relieved us on station so you're underwater the whole time for 115 days correct does it get weird down there uh no it doesn't get weird it's just um it would be like living in an office for 115 days with the windows blacked out you know fluorescent light um, you know, really subs are self-sufficient. We made our own water, oxygen. Um, your only limiting factor on a nuclear submarine is running out of food. So after a while, the food becomes quite boring, and it's very easy to lose 30, 40 pounds on a cruise. So you come back, you eat all the junk food you want, drink all the beer you want. You're like, man, I'm, I'm just oh, overweight, and you lose 30 pounds, and like three months, no problem. How's the pizza on the sub? Pizza, um, it was okay. Now that, you know, I never made pizza on the sub. Um, I would always, the best thing on the sub for me was like the mid-rats. They're called mid-rats, short for midnight ration. So at midnight, they throw this kind of smorgasbord of just leftover stuff out. And they would make just the most interesting things with it. But we would have well, we had these awesome tamales in a can that were just pretty good until I actually had real tamales and I said, Oh yeah, those I guess were not that great. But, you know, at the time, you know, tamales in the can, those were pretty good. So what style is the pizza on the sub? New York style? Yeah, more like a pan style, you okay. know, because, you know, it's not it's pretty simple. Does it does it get lonely, you know, being underwater for 115 days? Like what like what happens? Like so, there's a bunch of young men with a bunch of hormones. A like, lot of lot of, you know, young guys. I mean, the whole gamut from 18-year-olds all the way up to, you know, 40-year-olds um, play a lot of cards, watch a lot of movies, read a lot of books. Uh, no, movies. Uh, we uh, would get um, the blockbuster movies before they were even released in theaters. So we would get to see, you know, the newest movies and they wouldn't even be out yet. Um, now I know that they're able to have internet and texting and everybody has phones. And back when I was on board submarines, 
you got what was referred to as a family gram and you got 10 of these it was about the size of an index card and it had like 30 dashes on it so you got 30 words so that was the the precursor to texting you had to learn how to you know cram a message into 30 spaces and then somebody would radio that message your family would mail it off to you know it was prepaid they'd mail it off to wherever and the radio guy would transmit that so then when we would um, raise our radio antenna or buoy get all our messages and what was going on we kept up with sports you could know you know who was you know doing well in baseball or football at any time we got all that uh, we didn't get any live sports but we got the you know the gist we would get a burst transmission of hey this is what's going on in the world kind of a deal so you weren't completely isolated I think they have a little bit better now uh, as far as information goes um, but back when I was on the sub it was not very much information Every once in a while I'll see an article about you know China installing some sort of underwater listening device and you know Russians doing things and but we never hear what we're doing for obvious reasons would it be safe to assume that our you know countermeasures are as good or better than what what these other countries are doing yes you you just don't hear about it as much i mean the phrase is loose lips sink ships that that was the phraseology in world war ii so you know they couldn't tell them where they were going or when they were leaving just because they could track troop movements and they could you know they had Intel, you know, every country in the world has an intelligence arm, and they're sitting there crunching numbers every day. And whether you think it's a mundane fact that, you know, you have a conversation with a family member and they say, oh, I'm leaving on such and such date and I'll be back here, well, enough information and they can kind of get a general picture of what's going on. So as far as the U.S.'s capability of underwater listening devices uh it's referred to as the sosus net s-o-s-u-s um and we know when things are in our area because of that because we installed that i mean going back to the cold war so and they've even gotten it down to i'm sure the russians have but um big when you know in the 80 mid 80s early 90s that just like the movies, you know, the hunt for Red October, they can they can tell a specific ship by the sound its acoustic signature has. Everything has a certain acoustic signature, whether it's a biologic acoustic signature like a whale or a school of fish or a fishing trawler um, to submarines. I mean, it's because not every submarine is built exactly the same. Sure, they have overall the same sound dynamic but let's say use they used a different noise reduction piece somewhere on this model of sub versus another model of sub so everything has its own acoustic signature i believe it was in the hunt for the red october but it could be mixed up my sub movies but there was a you know russian u.s sub conflict underwater that was you know totally wiped out from the press mm -hmm. Does that sort of thing happen, or? Well, there are close calls where um, subs get 
too close to one another, and even surface ships do, um, even aircraft. So um, not so much to where they're shooting torpedoes at each other, you know. At, you know, I, I know in the 80s there were um, some Russian-made MiGs that would come out and harass the, you know, the Navy pilots, just like in the movie Top Gun, um, and they would light them up with radar, and uh, not whether or not they were going to launch their missiles or not was another issue. They could ju- you knew when you had an active bead on you, like you were being targeted. Uh, for submarines, it's a little bit different because you have passive sonar and then active sonar. Active sonar is the, the pinging, the, the sound you hear bouncing. You, know, they, you send a pulse through the water, and then when it bounces back towards you, then you can calculate the distance from things, but that also reveals your position. So the passive sonar is, you know, the sonar guys on the sub, they're just sitting there watching this screen and they can see just the, the ripples and they can hear things and they, they, they really train them really well on what's biologic, whether it's fish or a whale or this type of trawler because they, they've heard it before. And they, they record it. So every time they hear something new, they're making a recording. So it's there so they can refer back to it and then hand that off to, you know, the intelligence people. Have you ever popped up through the Arctic ice and got out and walked around? No, but that looks really cool. I wish, I wish we would have done that. Uh, what is your favorite sub-movie? Favorite sub-movie? I, I, like, uh, I like Hunt for Red October, but... I like the whole Crimson Tide thing with the, you know, Alabama and Gene. I think Gene Hackman plays a really good, you know, naval commander because he was a sub-commander on Crimson Tide with Denzel Washington. So those are two powerhouse guys. And then he was in the one movie with Owen. Owen, Who's the guy with the broken nose? Owen Wilson. Is that Owen Wilson, the one that um, was in Zoolander? Yeah. Okay. Owen, so he plays a fighter pilot, and Gene Hackman is the like the admiral of the carrier group. So, um, and then also the you know the big military movie for Gene Hackman is Bat Twenty One, where he's a downed Air Force um, general, really high up. He's a really he's an intelligence guy, and is like his bomber shot down never expected to be shot down he's behind enemy lines so that's a pretty good that has uh gene hackman and danny glover in it that's a pretty good military movie that's his code name bat 21 how is life different on the sub than it is portrayed in the movies uh it's pretty much just a schedule oriented day so um, you go underwater, uh, we operate off of Zulu time, which is a prescribed military time standard based off of Greenwich Mean Time. It's so everybody can operate on the same operational time schedule. So whether you're in Washington, D.C. or I'm underwater off the coast of Russia, if I say it's 2100 Zulu time, then you can figure out what time it is wherever I am anywhere in the world because everybody operates on. If they're operating on Zulu time, then you know what that means. Um, but for day-to-day, Monday through Friday, you know, it was like a 9-to-5 gig. 
if you weren't on watch Monday through Friday, we ran drills constantly, fire, flooding, you know, spin up all missiles. Then you break for lunch. Then you go back, you do drills again. And then after 5 o'clock, the, the drills stop. And, you know, it depends on when you're on watch. So there's four different watch rotations. There are six-hour shifts, basically, depending on how many people are qualified in the position that you work. So I was in a three-section watch rotation, which meant I was on six hours and then off 12, and then I'd go back on. So if you happen to be off and it was drill time, then you had to participate in drills, and you didn't get any sleep, and then you'd have to go back on watch, say, you know, in 12 more hours. So if you had to drill for eight hours, then you only received four hours off, and then you worked another six hours. But the weekends were pretty much, you know, off time. Uh, what were your exact responsibilities on the sub? So I was part of um, engineering. Uh, I was a mechanic. I was uh, stationed in the engine room. I walked around, took temper temperatures, pressures, monitored oil levels, pumped bilge water. You know, I was like in the lower level of the engine room. Uh, because I was not that senior of a guy. I was qualified for the other. That's what you do. You come on board, um, you qualify for your first position, and then you work your way up, but that doesn't mean that's where you're going to stand watch. You stand watch where, where there's a space to stand watch. So, you know, you use that time to learn all the systems on the submarine in order to get your little dolphins, pins, you have to be able to do everything on the submarine. So you have to go to everybody else's station, learn about torpedoes, about missiles, uh, navigation. You have to do all of that in order to qualify to get your submarine pin. Forgot about DOS boot. What is that? What is? How does that rank on your movie list? DOS boot. I like DOS boot. Um, it ranks pretty high. Like if, if we're talking about submarine movies. Um, DOS Boot's probably in the top three. Now, DOS Boot did an excellent job of capturing how claustrophobic it was in that sub. How are modern subs compared to that? Are they, is there a little more legroom in there? No, there's not. There's just more equipment crammed in there now. Um, you gotta remember DOS Boot, that submarine probably couldn't have been more than 150 feet, 175 feet. Um, and they probably had maybe 40 people on board. The modern Trident missile sub is, you know, 300-some foot long, 150 people on board. Uh, there's plenty of space for everybody, but it's not, um, you know, you're not sleeping in a queen-size bed either. You know, as far as claustrophobia goes, I remember the first time Going on board the submarine, the first thing that hit me was the smell of diesel fuel. And even though it was a nuclear submarine, we have a backup emergency diesel generator. Um, you never get that smell out of your memory or your clothing, for that matter. I would have to, when I came back from the cruise, I would leave all my sub clothes outside after I washed them because they just reeked of diesel fuel. And it was when, when I touched them and I smelt that. That smell, I was just like, oh, oh. Reminds you of home. Yeah, right. Were there any wild pranks that happened on the sub? 
wild pranks. No, I, every everything kind of was not. I mean, once you set foot inside of the sub, I mean, it's pretty much business. I mean, you know, as there's joking and camaraderie, you know, in the crew areas, you know, when you play cards and things like that, and we would have a event called Halfway Night, which was, um, you know, when we're halfway through our cruise, you know, your families would send you like a care package, and that was kept until halfway, so you open that, it was like Christmas, and um, so, you know, you had pictures and food, and, and then, you know, we would dress up, it was almost like Monty Python, you know, guys would dress up, and we would do skits and stuff, if anybody did something boneheaded, everybody knows everything on the submarine, there's, there's no hiding anything, so everybody knows your screw up wherever, so you know, we would make fun of everybody's screw-up, and that was a way to, you know, kind of, you know, be a, a team. What is the greatest lesson that you learned from being in the military? Working as part of a team for a goal, whether it was, hey, we have this we're working on today, we've got to get it done now, um, working under a deadline, a timeline, being accountable for your actions, whether you screw up or you do well. Um, and being able to say, hey, I kind of screwed up here. I didn't do this right. I didn't follow this. Uh, it was, uh, that was the main thing I took away from the military was being accountable, you know, knowing how to show up someplace on time, because if you didn't, okay, you went to military jail, you know, it's a little bit easier in the civilian world, right? Because Oh, you didn't show up today? Okay, well, next time you find another job kind of a thing. They don't lock you up. Um, but basically teamwork, uh, working towards a common goal, accomplishing the task at hand, and trying to do a lot with less. Was there any point when you're out on the cruise that you thought, you know, the real deal was happening and that you might have to shoot off the missiles? Was there ever a time that you were on standby or anything like that? No, because it, we ran drills like it was the real deal. So they went through every command, you know, spin up all missiles, you know, spin up missile 379 and 12, and, you know, the, the guys in the missile compartment would, you know, open the armory and break out the automatic weapons and it was you every time that happened you, you would say to yourself well, it's just a drill but it was serious you know they took it serious every time so what is the point of the automatic weapons from the armor is that in case you know, there was like a, a mole on the ship or something like that <laughs> not necessarily mole but uh that's part of the uh, authentication progress when a uh, uh, process when it comes to nuclear weapons so there's three parts of the nuclear triad there are the bombers so that's air-based the submarines which are underwater based and then land-based ballistic missiles so land-based and bombers are air force and the submarines are nuclear navy so it's just to make sure that nobody's going to interrupt you know because you train you, you drill for it um, you don't want it to happen. Nobody wants nuclear. Nobody's 
clamoring for nuclear destruction because that's what would happen. It's, it's MAD, MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction. And it is mad. It's crazy. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to see that we've kind of stepped back from that, that wall. I mean, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis from the late 60s through the Cold War to now, we don't have to worry so much about Russia nuking us or us nuking Russia. Um, North Korea, I'm still on the fence with them. China, they have a billion-man army. They're going to invade somebody. They're not going to launch nuclear weapons. It's the crazy fanatic people that want to get their hands on, you know, dirty reactor plutonium uranium that, you know, want to take out a football stadium or, you know, small small targets for mass destruction and hysteria. You know, that's what terrorism is designed for. What do you think our biggest threat is going forward? biggest threat um i think our biggest threat is in america is the divisiveness that's going on with people um i have people i i choose not to uh engage or decide whether i like somebody based on their politics because i think now with social media and the fact that people can hide behind facebook or instagram uh, or Twitter, and they can just send something out that, uh, you know, is is negative without being accountable for it. Uh, I think everybody's whipped into this, this lather that, oh, we're going to place a label on your Republican or your Democrat, and I don't really care for your politics, so therefore I don't like you. I have a lot of friends that we just don't discuss politics anymore because I pretty much know where they stand, they know where I stand, and I'd much rather talk about something better. Than, like pizza. Like pizza than politics. Do we have a credible outside threat right now? Credible or? outside threat. Um, not at this point in time. I think right now there's, there's always a threat. I mean, we were taken by surprise with 9-11. Um, there was a harbinger of that when they originally tried to bomb the World Trade Center and had the bomb in the parking lot there. Um, and I think 9-11, I mean, it's sad to say that it took 9-11 to happen to get America to come together. So, what, I mean, I just hate to say, what's, what's it going to take now to bring America back together? Is it going to take another event? I mean, that's just, I, I don't wish for that. That actually was the question that I was about to segue into. Okay. Um, 9 11, I mean, that was almost 20 years ago. That right. predates social media, at least any serious social media. Right. Do you think an event like that, and some people might not remember it because, you know, some people are younger, but I mean, literally everybody, you know, was waving American flags after that. I think Bush, who ended up you know, having a really poor approval rating at that time had one of the highest presidential approval ratings in history. Uh, do you think, you know, an event like that would unify people today? Or because social media is out there, it, people would still be divided on the event? I think they may be divided on the event because when I look at the tragedies that happen with uh, people using automatic weapons and going into schools, there's divisiveness there. Yes, people are behind 
and and have empathy for that happening at I think uh, the shooting in here in Florida is almost a year now I think this week um, and people empathize with that but then we have this divisiveness about okay we've got to get rid of guns and it's it's not guns it's people who use guns that in the wrong way and so I don't know that if something like 9-11 were to happen, whether it would unify the country or it would drive that wedge further of, well, had we done this or you done that, the laying of blame or, you know, instead of saying, what can we do so this doesn't happen again? What are we going to do now? Um, I think that's how... How we would have to look at it. Well, that's depressing. Do you have anything to? Do you have anything <laughs> well, we to add about? We can't. We can't end this on such a depressing note. I just, you know, I try to. My ethos every day is. Uh, everybody asks me because I'm in food service, uh, pizza on the side, but I uh, manage Honey Baked Ham in town every day, and I have regular customers. And every day they see me. Every day that I see them, uh, I tell them it's a blessing I got to see them that day. And uh, I say, you know, it, it doesn't get better. Uh, it's another day vertical on planet Earth. It, it doesn't get any better than that. I woke up today. I have a job to go to. I have, you know, things that I'm responsible for that people are counting on me to, to do every day. And so I have a chance to do it. And so that's how I stay positive. I don't dwell on the negative. Yeah, sometimes it can be you know, depressing, but I choose to be positive. And it's a lot harder to be positive than it is negative. So I choose it to be harder than taking the easy route. Best pizza topping? Best pizza topping. Um, pepperoni. Best beer pairing with pizza? Best beer pairing. Le Fin de Monde. Thanks for coming on the show, Kenny. Hey, thanks for having me, Kale. I appreciate it.